0: the great philosopher kierkegaard said life can only be understood backwards but it must be lived forwards looking back only results in learning for people who have that time to think and many of us are so busy with day-to-day demands that we rarely have time to reflect and that's why we started what i wish i knew it's for those moments when you realize that just a bit of insight might have come in handy if you had it in advance i'm mike Irwin,
1: and i'm simon door so we talk with people from all walks of life From startup entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes to weekend warriors, from artists and designers to even engineers who became designers, from those who dream to those who dream and actually do. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble and each have truly incredible learnings. In What I Wish I Knew, they share these lessons with you.
0: Join us at whatiwishanewshow.com. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please share and subscribe to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. Um,
1: welcome to this episode of What I Wish I Knew, and we uh, warmly welcome Mike Merrick. Mike is an experienced international executive search consultant uh, and he specializes in uh, consulting in leadership roles uh, with major blue chip companies. He's been doing that for over 20 years. He's got some really interesting stories to tell along the way I guess we could almost argue from the other side of the fence. Um, Mike lives in a, in a part of the UK called Warwickshire which is beautiful rolling hills and he tells me there's lots of uh, outdoor exercise and day pursuits and uh, and one exciting part, he's a passionate skier, he tells me, whose lack of ability is compensated by his level of enthusiasm, uh, which I guess uh, is a feature that can happen to a lot of us. So welcome, Mike, uh, to this. And, um, you know, we talk about, um, you know, going through periods of your of your life and your career, but maybe maybe a great way is to start a little bit about your background and you know, any, any interesting aspects and anecdotes uh, would, would be great to hear.
2: I think there's, uh, I can go back many years, but I think in terms of coming into recruitment, I've been in, in the recruitment industry for over 20 years now, and that was, it was something that happened almost by accident, and I, I, I used to work um, for um, American Express, and They relocated the office I was working in. Um, At the time, for personal reasons, didn't want want to relocate. Um, So left the organization, took a couple of months off. Um, Well, that was the intention. Within about two weeks, I got bored. And then started to question what what I was going to do and what what was next. And it was a a chance meeting with a a friend of a friend who was running a recruitment business um, in, in Birmingham in the UK. I um, had a conversation with him, he was looking to expand his business um, and asked me to join him, to which I said, but I don't know anything about recruitment, um, which is his response was, well, I can teach you that. He said, but you do understand, um, you have a background in financial services, and that's where he was looking to take his business. And that's, and that's how I ended up in, in, in recruitment and worked for for that gentleman for about two and a half years, which was... A fantastic, very exciting um, learning curve. And going back many years, when I, I walked into the office and there was no computer on the desk, there was a Rolodex, a copy of the other page, and a phone, and that was it. So recruitment those many many years ago was very different to what it is now. Um, arguably. More difficult because you know today you sit there with you know the internet at your fingertips. You had to work a lot harder to to develop business and also a lot harder then to 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 find candidates. And I think after about six months working for this guy, I I just thought this this is what I can see myself doing. And my career prior to financial services had drifted in, in out of several different things. But six months into recruitment, I thought. I really enjoy this, and that was about the, the, the i guess the interaction between one you're you're dealing with clients on one side and then you're dealing with candidates on the other side um and then m- making that match and it's it's just it was just fascinating to me how somebody can ask me to help them support or support them filling a role. you put somebody into that role, they do a good job in that role it has a significant impact on the organisation that they move into. And it also has potential, I think, to have almost life-changing um, impact on, on individuals. And in many of the roles we filled over the years, people have relocated, relocated both um, domestically and, in certain cases, internationally. And, you know, that's a huge element of responsibility to take on your shoulders when you place somebody into a job, they move from one country to another and take their family with them. So it's not just a career change, it's, it's almost a lifestyle change. And I think you've got to take, uh, you know, you've got to take a certain responsibility when, when, you, when you're operating at that sort of level.
1: Now it's interesting, Mike. I mean, obviously, you've you started to talk about a little bit of the aspects and the success that you bring to and with people. But just to step back a little bit and, and just take a breath on that piece, you know, from uh, working in the financial world. And then moving into that, I guess, in a way, or potentially what you've described, more customer and, and uh, consulting facing. Is that something, or just describe what, you know, what, what Mike is like that got you to enjoy that? Is that you, or were you destined to, to work in finance and suddenly this opportunity sort of fit your, your DNA? Just, just help us understand that. I, I think it was more about having that
2: you know if, if when, when i was working in financial services in previous careers you you would sell something if it, it was a financial product or it, it, prior to that i worked in the contract furnishing sector you, you'd sell a product people would part with their money and that would be it and i think the one thing that really fascinated me about recruitment was you firstly you have to you have to make a sell to the client to convince them that you're the right person to fulfil their needs. And then beyond that, you've got to make a sale to the candidate and convince them that the opportunity within the, 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 their new potential employer is going to give them more. Uh, and that's not just about money. And yes, that's an important part in it. But it's, it's going to enhance their career. It's going to take them further towards what they, where they want to get to. And, and that I guess the psychology that fascinated me because you're almost having to make two sales. Mm. One to convince the client to work with you. And secondly, then to convince the candidate to be open to exploring opportunities. And and a lot of times, you know, I'm picking up the phone to people to to present an opportunity to them. Those people may not necessarily be looking for a job. So, and again, part of my role in any recruitment process, I guess, is to very much act as an ambassador on behalf of the client that I'm working for and you know you work over the years you build relationships you work very very closely with people so you get to know their businesses you get to know why somebody should leave where they are to join this other organization and and that's just the whole process just from a very early stage in recruitment just fascinated me, really do
0: Mike, on that note, you, you talked about maybe changes in the, you know, in the recruitment industry over the years. And one of the terms you used about, you know, Rolodex. And I'm kind of thinking now that there's probably a younger generation that will quickly not know what Rolodex means anymore, right? So um, it's one of those analogies that all of us use all the time. And I find myself thinking, gosh, you know, if I'm talking to a 25-year-old, do they even know what that is? Um, yeah. But as as you reflect on the changes, as you look back to maybe when you first started in recruitment versus today, what changes do you see from your client point of view? And then what sort of changes do you see from the standpoint of of candidates that you talk with? Yeah, I think from the
2: the, the client's point of view, I think the the expectations is once an organization has made the decision for whatever reason to to bring something into their organization, my experience today is their expectations of that what they want from a candidate is, is far higher than it was 20-plus years ago. Um, you know, they, they want somebody who can do the job. They want somebody who can fit culturally. They want somebody who can re- work remotely. They want somebody who can work part of the team. They want somebody who's prepared to travel extensively. And the world now, you know, prior to, to, to the situation we're currently going through, you know, for senior executive roles, in many instances, could involve 50%, 60% travel. Whereas years ago, it was nowhere near that. And you know, organizations now, blue-chip organizations tend to be operating on a global basis. So somebody doing an organization in, in a senior-level role, the expectation is, you know, you're, you're in the UK today, next week you're in the US, the week after that you're in Mexico. And so I think the expectations in terms of the the quality of individual that they're looking for has increased quite substantially.
0: And does that then mean that there's also a big culture overlay, right? Because no matter where someone is based, there's a good likelihood that they're going to be collaborating with people in many different parts of the world. And therefore some degree of cultural awareness or cultural savvy becomes not just a a unique attribute, but a fundamental expectation. I think, particularly more senior
2: level roles. Absolutely, I mean, if you're looking at, um, particularly in the commercial world, if if somebody is having to service, even if they're servicing, in, in, for example, a key account manager for a major blue chip company, they might be servicing one company, but that one company will have operations globally. So, and how you do business in China is different to how you do business. In the UK, it's different to how you do business in, in the US. And, and again, if you look at Europe as, as well, again, one continent, there are cultural differences from, from one country to another. And that cultural sensitivity, I think, for organisations becomes very important when they're looking for somebody to move into, into an international role.
1: Mike, that's a really interesting point, And you've been successful throughout that. I mean, we talk about what I wish I knew, what what things and, and have you, if you like, maximized your learning and yourself to get you to that point that you, you're kind of savvy and, and you can work and deal internationally with various customers and clients? I
2: mean, there's a couple of things on that. One, one I think a lot of that comes with experience. Um, and... You know, experience is born from doing things and doing them badly and doing them again and doing slightly better and doing them again. And then that, that continual move to, to improvement. I think it's also about, as, as a recruiter, is spending the time at the beginning of any recruitment process trying to understand what the culture of any organization is. And as an outsider, that's never easy to do. And how do you do that? You do that by speaking to as many different people in, in the organization. And I know, you know, if I'm dealing with a new client, I just don't want to speak to the hiring manager. I want to speak with members of his team and I want to speak to other senior level people in, in the business because everyone's going to have a different view. Um, and again, but, and that was something that I never used to do. But as the demands for people, I've got more, you know, this cultural fit. And there's a phrase that is somewhat overused. the only way you can do that is by talking to people because you're not in the business, so you don't know. Um, And that's, again, that was a learning process. And and doing it badly, and then, as I say, getting slightly better every time you do something.
0: Do you find that culture is something that is readily apparent or or do you run into situations where the, the expressed culture is maybe a little bit different than the than the reality? I, I think the,
2: the reality is always different. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, I say working with particularly new clients, is I, I just don't want to speak to one person. I want to speak to several people because each will have a different view. And each, even within one organization, you'll have different cultural aspects from, from one country to another. And very different in, in some instances, particularly in, in global organizations. And so if I'm working for a company that's, they're headquartered in the U S but they're asking me to recruit for a a role in, in, in Switzerland, for example, I want to be speaking to the people in the U S but also want to be speaking to some of the people in the Swiss business as well, because it's, it's, it's gaining that awareness, that, that awareness of what those sort of differentiating
1: factors are. And just on that, Mike, I guess, again, if you've distilled by talking to people and your experience of a culture and you know, I guess we all look at sometimes the signage of a culture or the values, et etc, and then, like you said we we kind of walk, walk the walk and we see it ourselves and we get our lens on it. How do you get to the point then where you may not see the culture that 's written down in black and white how do you How do you get to the end game of that, and more importantly, how do you then take that either through the Company on to the potential person you want to try and get to be employed. So again, that's by communi- by communication. So it's having
2: having the conversations. It, it's it's asking questions, and again, it's 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 then when you're then trying to convey that to a candidate, and that's not because it, because it, it, it's intangible. You you can't touch it. You can't you can't feel it. Um, It's explaining the the nuances of the company, how people interact, the the management style, the leadership style of people. And, again, leadership style will vary from person to person within one organisation because everybody's different. And, again, for me, that's what makes this job interesting because, you know, you you can recruit for one company for several different people in in that organisation. They've all got a different story to tell. And it's understanding... You know, one of the questions that I'm asking about people, about when I'm talking to hiring managers, is you know what attracted them to the organisation and why are they still there after 15 years and what has it done for their career? Because they've got their own story to tell, and it, it's it's it it is it's all it's all about, re, you know, collecting those stories in and then relaying them onto the the, the the candidate.
0: That's interesting. And, and so in that regard, if you think about, you know, recruitment in general, um, I'll ask you sort of two questions, but they're, you know, they're related. And one of them is, what do you wish that clients that that companies that need help, what do you wish they knew about what you do? And then the other side of that is what do you wish candidates knew about recruitment and what it really means? Cause I kind of feel like in some, some cases, it's possible that people on either side may look at the recruitment process as a bit of a black box and not really understand how to be effective participants.
2: I think it's a very good, very good question. But I think in terms of you know, what, what I wish clients knew, um, and again, it's part of the process that I go through when I'm talking to, potentially with new clients, is there is recruitment and there is recruitment. Um, there is a, there's a, there's a very... There's some fine line between somebody who is operating in, in executive search, is, is what I do, and then there's somebody who's operating on the other side of it, who's who's scanning online CV databases and then presenting those CVs to, to the client. And you, you will speak to some clients and they say, well, we, yeah, we, we use recruitment recruit agencies. Um, and... That, that's typically how recruitment agencies work. I, I, don't, I don't see myself falling into the, the category of a recruitment agency, because we do a lot more than that. We don't just go on, find CVs, send them to a candidate. And that, that's, almost, that's almost what, uh, you know, you're becoming a CV waiter. You're just taking a bit of paper for, off the internet and then putting your brand on it, sending it to your client, and hoping that client is, is going to make a hire. And what we do is go through a very thorough process that that, that starts with, I guess, and a a lot of clients sometimes quite surprised how much much of their time that I want at the beginning of a process. And they say, well, why why, why do we need an hour? Why do you need to speak to all these people? They say, it's because I need to understand your business because I have to go and represent your business to somebody who isn't potentially looking for a job. And by doing that, and going through a very thorough search process, clients find the best candidates that are suited for the job, rather than the best candidates whose CVs are lying about on an online database. And that's a differentiating factor between what I consider myself to be as an executive search consultant and somebody working for a recruitment agency. And I think the other thing here is, I mean, you know, the business I run is is my business. It's it's my name over the door. Um, And so I'm always conscious in working for clients. I've I've got a reputation to uphold, and recruitment as an industry has has quite a bad reputation for some very unscrupulous practices that go on. You know, I've survived in the recruitment industry for over 20 years. Um, and you don't do that and still have a reputation unless you're operating with a huge level of professionalism and, and integrity, which which to me is key. And, I, and a lot of people say that, but that's when you're building your own business, that's, that's that's key to success.
1: And Mike, just again, talking about the what I wish I knew, if you've done 20 odd years, if you like is that interface and support and you've met many many clients and many many potential candidates and let's just put the candidate hat on now you know what i wish i knew what what kind of top tips you know maybe three five maybe more but what what would you do if you were in a role where you were approached or if you were in a role where you were interested in in getting out there whether it's UK or internationally what what's your, your your kind of key learnings there I think if you're making an approach
2: to somebody who isn't looking for a job and you start off that dialogue with them and some some people will say I'm, I'm not looking for a job I'm not interested in talking And I think my my advice to to anybody who gets a phone call from a recruiter is to have the conversation with them because it's it's a five or 10 minutes initial conversation and be open-minded to those conversations because you you never know if this is going to present you with the best opportunity. So, you know, have that conversation. If you don't, after that conversation, if you don't think it's right, that's absolutely fine. Um, And I you know, I speak to people day in, day out, every day of the week, and the majority of the people that I speak to are open-minded enough you know, to have that conversation. And sometimes you have that conversation, and I will turn out to them and say, "No, I, I don't think this is the right job for you." And it, it's you know, you cannot force somebody into into a position if, if it's if it's if it's not the right thing for them. And I think it's you don't just pick up the phone someone and say, "You know, are you looking for a job?" I've got a great job for you. It's, it's that, that gentle coercion, that gentle persuasion, that sharing and drip-feeding of information, maybe over two or three phone calls, to get somebody to your point where they're saying, yeah, actually, that, that actually could be interesting. I like the sound of this. And I think that, in some instances, is you know, we work on several projects that are, for whatever reason, extremely confidential. And so you're not able, on those initial conversations, to divulge who you're working for. So you're speaking on behalf of a global organization that is that is looking to hire whatever the role may be, and candidates always want to know who you're working for, who, who's your client. Well, I can't actually tell you. So that's, that's a difficult conversation to have. But I think most people appreciate that. Um, but being open-minded and being willing to have those conversations with people, and even if they don't go anywhere, it's another point of contact that, you, in, in, you know, that you've established, if not for now, for, for future reference. So um, I think the key is be open-minded and have those conversations, yeah?
1: So some people are more extrovert, are more introvert, are, are more open to a conversation. If you're sort of hell-bent and you see a profile and you think this personality or this person, you know, is fit for the role, how do you how do you adopt adapt yourself? I mean do you say Hey, you know great great person," but do you kind of based on what you've just described, you say, well, I'm going to leave it or do you think no i'm I'm going to knock on Mike's door a few more times here because you know I can see he or she is valuable um yeah
2: I think that there's a balance there you you, you can usually glean from conversations initial conversations if if somebody's totally close minded you know you you can't you can't take, you know, you can't push water uphill. Um, you know, you, you can take a course to water, but you can't make him drink. But what you can do is you can put salt in his oats. So <laughs> you're then getting people to be, yeah, by drip feeding some information to them. You're getting them to sort of think, ah, m- maybe this guy is worth talking to. Yeah. And you know, okay, you know, quite what I can say to people is, well, okay, let. You know, we've never spoken before, but there is an opportunity. Let let me share some information with you over the course of a couple of phone calls, and and then let me hopefully provide you with enough information for you to make that assessment as to whether this is the right opportunity. But don't make that assessment based on the fact that you're not looking for a job. Make make that assessment based on what can this actually do for me.
0: How do people know in that sense? You know, we. we so many things have changed through the years, and you know, a long a long time ago, you know, longevity was, uh, you know, was a consideration in people as they look at their careers. But so much has changed, and you know, is is there a right time to move on? You know, from one thing to the next, and if so, how would how would someone know when that is? I think if if someone has an ambition to take their career for, to
2: forward beyond where it is. I think it becomes pretty obvious to somebody that I've been doing this job for three years and the next role isn't evident. Or the next role within the organisation is filled with... If someone else is doing the next role and that person's been there for 20 years and they're never going to leave. And, you know, you get to a point at that point, where OK, I've, I've, I've done what I can. I've made the contribution as much as I can do here. Where do I go next? And you, you know, you see some people who've been in organisations for 15 years. And they've had five different jobs over 15 years because every time they've, they've done a job and been successful, they've been promoted. They've been moved on to the next role. And they've done the same again and moved on to the next role. And then they get to a point where that's great. But now I'm at a point where there is nowhere else to go in this particular organization. And then they get, you, know, you get to a certain age where you're thinking, uh, you know, if I stay here for another five years, that's me for the rest of my life. But I've still got I've still got more to give, I've still got more I can do. So maybe now is the time to consider an opportunity. And it's a very personal thing. You know, some people are happy doing the same job day in, day out. Other people get to a point where they get they get bored, they've got ambition, they've got drive, they want to do something, they want to make a difference. And if if that ceases to exist in a business and people start to get frustrated, that that's probably a good time to take a phone call from somebody
1: like me when, when out of the blue. And just on that, Mike, what, you know, we, we talked earlier in the whole program is what I wish I knew 20 years ago to now, what things have you learned about your role and your capability and, and how has that changed? I presume you're more successful. I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think, I mean, several things.
2: I mean, I think the recruitment industry inevitably has changed and will we'll continue to do so. Um, you're seeing a lot of organisations that are trying to automate the recruitment process. and Yeah, there are certain instances you can do that. I still think it's an industry that requires personal interaction on a one-to-one basis, particularly if you're talking with somebody about their career. I and mean, it's important to them. But it, it's not just a case of applying for a job and clicking send my cv online people like to have that that, that interaction um, but i think one of the things that, that for me has has become very important particularly i think i, I think since, since probably 2008 and 2009 i mean my, my back when i first came into recruitment i recruited in financial services uh, up until 2007 2008 2009 until the financial crash and it was a great place to be um, overnight Within a year, my, my business turnover had gone down 90%. Wow. And so I'm sat there thinking, oh, dear, um, what do I do now? Um, and I've, for large portions of my life, I've, I've worked for myself. And the thought of actually going and working for somebody else just filled me with dread, to be honest with you. So I, I had to look at where my, where my business was at that stage. Um, and... What I did for a couple of years, I I recruited for anybody in any sector who paid me money to do anything, and you know, be totally open. That that was a certain element of desperation. But as you know, running a a, your own small business, what I I came to the realization is that I cannot be a generalist and be all things to all people. You're big global recruitment organisations that have got multi departments with many hundreds of people. Yes, they can. They can have a sector specialist for this and a sector specialist for that. As a small business, I thought, well, if I'm going to really be successful and regrow my business, I really, really need to be focused in a quite a well-defined niche, and that's when. You know, after, after a couple of years, almost in the wilderness, like, you know, I, I, and having had some experience of working in, in the food and food ingredient sector, that's why I decided that that's where I'm going to focus my efforts. And over the last few years, you know, I've, I've, I've built my business in that sector, and 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 I've built it internationally, both with some, you know, global, massive organisations as well as some smaller organisations. Um, and I think it, it, it's being specific, the niche about what you're doing, rather than being a recruiter across every sector just because someone needs a job filling. Um, and now, if, if I'm approached from outside of the sector and it's, and, and it's, it's outside of that sec- of, of the sector in which I work, I walk away from it because it's, it's not serving me any real purpose.
1: But you talked about food, which you weren't in. So how do you... You know how do you get to be great at that what What things have you done to kind of get yourself to the level that you can go and talk to major food companies yeah multi billion pound companies
2: again that that hasn't happened overnight that's that's taken m- many years and I think a lot of that is by speaking to people um by by taking the time to Understand how businesses operate. To understand how businesses operate across the food sector in, in different areas of the food sector, um, you go to conferences, meet people, talk to people, understand how You know, in what what sectors organizations are, are, are specialists. Understand, um, I guess, you know, what are the key trends um, in, in the food sector, and and that in the short time, eight eight years, I've been working in the food sector. trends have changed significantly and it's being aware of that and then understanding where where the market is going and the beauty about working in one market all i ever do is talk to people in the food sector and from that you just gain lots and lots and lots of insights and, and information that if you were a generalist you you wouldn't necessarily do and for me, that's that that's that's been a huge advantage. And and, and to be honest with you paying paying dividends right now.
0: And Mike, you just mentioned, you know, something that probably is universal to many as their um, you know, smaller businesses or even emerging ones, just the, the the whole notion of focus. You know, in consulting, I sometimes see, you know, early stage companies or smaller ones that are looking to grow and they make the mistake of chasing whatever shiny thing, you know, comes their way or whatever way they can, they can, anything that they, they they'll get paid for, they'll do. And, yeah. you know, it, it, there, like you mentioned, there is some sense of desperation to it, but in a lot of ways, it's understandable. I mean, if we're trying to, to support our families or pay our mortgage or, you know, pay the rent on the, on the office, you know, you got gotta have money rolling in to do that. But, you know, time and again, I think it shows that there is a benefit of focus and, and really defining who you're your customer base is. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, outside as a, as a consultant or outside, it, you know, as a theorist, it's easy to say, well, you should focus. On the inside, yeah. there's some degree of risk with that, which is like, well, wait a minute, that means I'm gonna be turning business away or I'm deciding not to do things that I think that I could, that I would get paid to do. How do you get comfort with that risk, I guess? You, I think there's, you, you have, to, have to, at some point, you have to take a leap
2: of faith and have, have belief in your ability to, to do something. Um, and it, at the time, it, it wasn't an easy decision to make. And I, I, I thought, look, I can, continue, I can continue being a generalist and basically scraping around for business. Or if I become a specialist and have that focus, it allows me, and I think you have to take a longer term view. Short term, I took a hit longer term is paying dividends. Because now I, I, I'd like to think I have a profile across the sector um, that I can pick up the phone to the CEO of, of a gl- global ingredients company and they will know who I am. And if you're a generalist, you'd never be able to do that. And the other, the other side of it is, and particularly from a, I guess from a competitive point of view, if I'm speaking to clients, you know, quite often I'm compl- I'm I'm competing against the global executive search firms, and the people are saying, "Well, we know, we use X Y Z Corporation at the moment. Why should we use you?" And it's quite easy for me to justify that because I know your sector. I, I know your sector better than any other recruiter out there, and I I honestly believe that. But somebody who's working for a big firm is yeah, they might be a sector specialist, but they don't necessarily have the vested interest in delivering to the same level and the same quality of service that I deliver. And for me, that's it, it is. It's about, it's about delivery. It's about the levels of service and what I'm able to do because, because I am a specialist in a particular
1: sector. And again, in, and to support this, mike and you know i've I've been with you i've walked with you you know you're the truth there is that you have deep dived yeah so you've been you fly out to cologne to the food trade show you go to france to their food trade show you you kind of walk the walk yeah and you know i could say do all recruiters and consultants do that i'm not sure but i you, you know just in terms of the takeout here it's pretty evident that if if you are going to specialise, then you you deep dive into that. I think you have to you have to immerse yourself in that in that
2: in that sector. Um, and if you don't, you're operating on the periphery of it. But I think if you if you're going to specialise in, in in a particular sector, I think in, in, whether you're in recruitment or any other industry, you have you have to be seen as a specialist you have to be seen, and there's almost an expectation that you're at the trade events, that, that you're seen to be there. And it, for me, it's, it's, it's establishing the credibility, the, the awareness. Um, when we were in Paris at the FIE last year, I, I was walking on my way to see somebody. On the way there, two people stopped me out of the blue that I'd never met before. And they said, hey, you're Mike Merrick. And I looked at it and I think, oh, it's quite embarrassing because I haven't got a clue who you are. Um, and then it was it was almost a compliment because I, I think that's a result of having that profile in the sector. Um, but to get that for me it was a huge compliment. And it, it just testament to the work that we do. I, you know, as, as a small business, I got a small team of people, we 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 put out you know content that's tailored to our sector. Um and I think it's a testament to that and the effort that goes into that to build that profile to that extent.
0: Let me ask you something else. I was reading on your blog, you were ta- you, you wrote a piece about, you know, the keys to homeworking, right? And as you look ahead, you know, and and people now are going on five months of, you know, largely working from home around yeah. the world. Right. And, you know, it, I mean, maybe I'm speaking more from an American standpoint, but it doesn't seem like there's a near-term end in sight, at least here. Um, how do you see kind of the nature of work changing? Um, you know, if, if we talk again in two years, what do you think will have happened by then, um, or do you think that there will be a lot of people continuing to work from home? I think it's, and again, I've
2: spoken to so many people over the last few months, and that there are people who are working from home now. That have never ever worked from home. There are organizations out of necessity, they've had to let their staff work at home. And but it's never been in the company culture to let their staff work at home. And I think a lot of people have actually realized that, hey, I can be effective working from home. I, I can still do a large portion of my job. And I, I'll give you a good example. I was speaking to somebody only last week. Um, it's a guy in the UK, he used to drive an hour and 20 minutes to work in the morning to sit in his office to spend all day on video conferences and phone calls and then drive home an hour and 20 minutes at the end of every day. And I said, would be interested. I said, how does that look for you going forward? He said, well, he said, there, were, there, are, there will be occasions when I need to be in the office, but if I'm gonna drive to the office and spend all day on the phone in front of the computer, I don't need to be in the office. And I, think, and he, and I said, well, how do you feel about that? He said, well, to be honest with you, I'm elated because I get back nearly three hours a day. It means I could spend more time with my kids in the morning before going up to the office. I could be there when the kids are going to bed at night. And then I can do my job in in between that effectively. And I think there are certain roles where I, I, I think what I see is almost a hybrid going forward where like the individual I just talked about, I think he will go to the office when he needs to be there but when he doesn't and he can he can work effectively from home i think he will i think people who are working in in production i mean you, you can't work in a production facility from home i mean you know th- they will still have to go to the office but roles that don't require that sort of presence there will I, I say i think there'll be an element of flexibility and organ- all you know speaking to um, senior gentleman at a client last week, and over the last four months, their volumes have gone down by 20%. Their profits have increased. And I said, how? He said, travel. He said, normally, I'm making two to three international trips a week. That's first-class airfare, because he's senior executive. That's uh, overnight in a hotel, meals out, expenses. He said, "I haven't done that for the last four months." And he said, "You multiply that out by the number of people we've got out on the road who haven't been able to." He said, "We the company has been more profitable, yet with a decline in volumes." Wow, which which I find fascinating.
1: Wow, but Mike, on you know, uh, to be au contraire, too, yeah, so. We're in a situation where that's happening and fewer people are actually meeting face-to-face. But the world, six months ago, we did do that. And you could argue there was an inertia of collaboration and support and, and all that goes with meeting people, even if you're traveling abroad. At some point, to be contrary here, surely that social interaction other than a 2D image <coughs> on a screen is so, so important. Yeah.
2: I I think it is. Um, I think it, it, I think it still is. Um, I think, you know, if you are in the commercial world um, and you're, you're meeting your clients virtually, I think that's, that's okay. I think if you've already got a relationship with them and you already met them, you've been out to dinner with them, you, you know them, but if you're speaking to a new client, it's, it's difficult to start to build that level of rapport, but I think I think culturally, I think people are getting used to doing it, and there are still occasions when you know, in, in, for whatever reason, people will still need to travel internationally. And I think people I spoke to actually miss it. You know, g- going, you know, flying from one place to another, going, spending time inside your inside your client's R and D function, inside their product development function, and uh, meeting the, the people. At your client's premises and understanding what their needs are, you can do so that you can do so much of that virtually. But it's not, it's not the same. And I think people actually genuinely, to some extent, miss that. So I, I can see going forward. I say I, I think there will be occasions when people will want to do that, but possibly less frequently.
1: And just on your experience, because you've got a wide network of uh, senior people here just come back to the point you raised earlier in the in the podcast about culture and how important that particular aspect is and and, and feature i mean how do you from your lens see companies interacting to ensure you know the mantra the cultural values etc of that business is maintained again you know you're in a different situation right now you're not physical how do, how do you from your listening, hearing and experience, how would you say that we, or as people listening to this, should actually manifest ourselves?
2: I think there's, from a recruitment point of view, um, I think because a lot of the work that we do is, is international, um, and it's, it's been typical that first, second round interviews will be done you know, virtually, um, but there is, you know, you can go through first round, second round interviews virtually, and then typically, what would happen is the candidate would be invited to to meet with the client face to face, or with several people from that organisation. And I think it's in doing that that's when you start to understand the chemistry and the personalities of people. And you, yes, you can do a certain amount of that virtually, but it's not it's it's not the same. Um, I've, one client that I've worked with actually went through a whole recruitment process virtually, and hired a production director for one of their facilities in Europe, which was totally outside of their their culture. They would have never historically ever even considered doing that. Um, And, you know, I I had long conversations with him in terms of, well, we need to get this person on board by September. If we wait until... Lockdown is easy, and people can travel. That might be another month, it might be another two months, it might be another three months. But then you meet that person, and that person's going to be on three months' notice. Then you, you've lost that three months. So, what they, they went through a very structured process in terms of their interview virtual interview process. We then undertook some very detailed, um, we did psychometric testing. Uh, psychometric profiling, verbal reasoning, numerical reasoning, um, over and above what they would normally do. Um, We then did a lot of background reference checks until they had had enough information that they felt comfortable in making that offer without having met the person. The candidate also felt comfortable because he'd had probably more virtual meetings than he would have had face-to-face meetings. Um, and was very impressed that they'd been so thorough about the whole process that they made the offer and the candidate accepted it. and, you know, all things being equal, the gentleman will start at the, at the beginning of September, but it, it, to them, it's totally foreign and it was a, it's a huge leap of faith. But, again, they either did that or they, they lo- lose two, three months.
1: Fascinating. I think
0: also, too, you know, I was just thinking about the whole notion of, of collaboration and people working together, and certainly there's benefits of people working in the same office, but in some ways, I feel like the, you know the COVID impact has been that it forces us all remote, which isn't that different from when we're managing remote or working with remote offices anyway. You know we're not together. And I think back in, you know in my years of, of travel, and sometimes I would see someone once or twice a year at a key meeting, right? But it was that face-to-face that fostered a continual, you know, sense of connection. And all of the rest of our work was completed over, you know, over the phone or conference calls and emails and the like. But it was never really built upon spending much time face-to-face anyway. So I wonder if in some ways that part of the impact here on organizations and on individuals is that we're all remote. Um, And it's not that much different than you know, if I'm working with, you know, the two of you in the UK and you were in two offices and I'm here in San Diego in that we're apart anyway. Um, so I just wonder if maybe, you know, there, there certainly is a, a dramatic impact, but it's not that foreign to people who've been collaborating with people across time zones and that sort of thing anyway. I know, I think you're right. And I also think there's been,
2: this probably been people have had more virtual interaction than that they've had previously um so i think a certain extent relationships have have grown because it's 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 very you know it's almost second nature now you don't think anybody anything about jumping on a zoom call or skype call or teams call It's just what we do every day of the week um whereas you might have done that once a month True. I, I think the technology makes, in, in that respect, makes life so much easier and it's accessible to everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, in some ways you hit you on Span- limitations and that, that whole notion of limitations and, you know, didn't know our limitations. And I think, you know, earlier in our careers or at some points, oftentimes that sense of lack of limit that we could do anything is sort of an empowering quality, right? And yeah. Um, and then we sort of, as time goes on, we kind of slot ourselves into either what we like to do or what we think we can do. Um, and it sounds like that's kind of what you were talking about. No, I, I, I think you're right. I think you summarize
2: that really well. I mean, it's. Uh, I think you can sometimes think you know what your limitations are, but you don't. Because there's always occasion, and life's going to sometimes throw you a curveball. It's going to push you beyond what those limitations are. But if you didn't know what those limitations were in the best in the first place, then you just
1: get on and do things. I like that. I feel as well, Mike, and you know, we've had sort of conversations outside of this podcast. Um, as a front person, your style must be as well that supportive. Um, engaging, but also positive all the way through. Is that correct? I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about the learnings of, of people who, who are listening to this, that you probably had some dire situations and managing people and clients along the way, but I, I get the true sense that you've, you've got a kind of um, you know, very strong uh, a DNA in you that says, look, let's keep this uh, positive all the way through. I, I I think you're right, and I think
2: it's and again that 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 starts you know at the very early stage of any relationship with whether it's with a client or with a, with a candidate is you know you, you've got to come across you' positively enthusiastic to to people and, and, and i don't mean gushing enthusiastic but you've got to be you've got to talk about your business what you do with a passion and, and and you've got to convey that to people and when you and when you're speaking to candidates you, you, you've got to be passionate and uh, about the client that you're representing because if you're not you're not going to be able to convince people you know and again i said earlier on i've got two sales to make one i've got to convince a client that i'm good enough to support them in what they're looking at doing secondly i've then got to convince the candidate and, and that's, again, that's what really makes it, for me, this, this business really interesting. But you, you've got to convey, you have to come across in such a way that you're, you're positive, you're enthusiastic, you're driven. Um, and even, even with clients, some of the clients I work with now, there's been a couple of roles that I've, I've said no to. Because it's been outside of my sphere of influence. And these have been you know, very technical roles in the IT sector. And I don't think I can help you with that. Because the last thing I want to do is to take on a role from a client and not be able to fulfill it. Because that's short-term. Just looking at doing something for short-term gain. And I'd rather maintain that relationship um, than, than doing something just because it's going to put a few bucks in the bank this week, next week. you know. Fantastic.
0: Mike, this has been really, really good stuff. And um, for me, at least, it's, it's a great learning about, you know, uh, about executive search and, and that kind of thing. But I, I think you hit on so many themes in terms of, you know, the power of focus and the, the need, you know, to, for positivity and the, the understanding of culture and fit that really relate across industries and across roles. And so uh, I, I really, really appreciate your time and I've enjoyed the conversation. No, li- likewise, it's been uh, fascinating. You pushed me a little bit on a couple
1: of things, which is okay, which is okay. <laughs> hey, Mike, thank, thank you. And again, t- just to add to Mike's, you know, clearly some some key aspects there to take, yeah. Y- y- your energy, your enthusiasm, and you built that, I think, from what you described earlier, y- you kind of didn't know what you didn't know when you started out, but you, you certainly got a focus, as Mike said, and, um, you know, fabulously uh, yeah, successful and um, yeah I wish you all all the best yeah no like
2: grateful for for taking the time chat it's been a been a fascinating conversation thank
1: you we do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dore please join us at what I wish I knew show.com. you can subscribe to us on Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts And wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
0: Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishikknewshow.com.